All right, well, we're in Ezekiel, and we're going to see perhaps one of the most shocking pictures. God in the prophets uses a lot of shocking pictures, uh, but this one is truly an astounding picture because we're going to see the Lord leave his temple and see the Lord leave his people in in these chapters. And in such a picture, it should really cause us to ask, what would cause God to leave his people? What would cause God to leave that temple? Remember that God said to David and confirmed it also to Solomon that he would put his name at that temple and in Jerusalem forever. Second King or first second yeah second second Kings or second Samuel twenty one verse seven second Kings twenty one verse seven yeah that's an important thing to think about God says this is going to be the place of my name this is the place where I'm going to live and my name will be in Jerusalem my name will be in the temple forever and now we're going to get this visual of God leaving that leaving that temple leaving His people so what could possibly cause God to leave his temple, the place that he said that his name would reside forever. And if we can look at why God is leaving and leaving his people, then we can understand in this relationship that we have with God, what would finally cause God to leave? This is going to be really a two part. Chapter 11 is is a picture of why God is going to stay. But I couldn't make I originally was going to do chapters eight through 11 tonight. Couldn't make it work in the time frame. So next week, Lord willing, is chapter 11 called Why God Would, or When God Stays. Uh, and this is going to show when, when God leaves. First four verses of, e, of Ezekiel chapter 8. You'll notice that we have another vision. Another vision that, that, that transpires in, in verse 4. It is a reminder of what we saw in chapter 1. Verse 4 of chapter 8 reveals that the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. That reminds us of chapter 1, that amazing throne room scene of God uh, in just the staggering picture of his throne and the, the wheels and the eyes. And it's just indescribable all that was going on. Uh, in that first chapter. Well, this vision now is taking place uh, uh, again. In these first four verses, Ezekiel sees a, a figure who has an appearance of fire, an appearance of, of bright, gleaming metal, and Ezekiel in vision is brought to Jerusalem. Verse 3, he put me in, it put out a form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth. And brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the of the inner court that faces north. And then I want you to notice something that is observed here is he's brought to Jerusalem and he's brought to the face of the temple is God is going to show him a, a, a myriad of things. And the first one is right there in verse three, bringing him to the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. It doesn't say exactly what this is, but there is some idol that is in the temple courtyard that God, rather than identifying what the false God is, he just says, that is the place of jealousy and it is provoking me to jealousy. One of the, I think the likely guesses of what it is, is when you are in second Kings 21, it reveals to us there 
that you have Manasseh putting in this Asherah image in the temple complex. And that might be what this is pointing at, is here you are observing that the worship of false idols and these false gods is not only strewn throughout the land, it's in the temple itself. And I want you to notice how God describes this. Because God calls it the image of jealousy. Why do you call it jealousy of all things? Except it's confirming what God said earlier that we looked at last week. Where God is broken by the hearts that are straying away from him. And the eyes that are turning to other gods and other idols. And here God is using another way to represent that image. I am jealous for my people and I am devastated that you are breaking this relationship that we have. And so he uses jealousy as the picture. It is not just simply God saying, you know, I just don't want you to worship other gods, but I love you and care for you and want a relationship with you. I'm broken by your idolatry. And here is this first image that provokes my jealousy. That you would turn your attention, to turn your hearts to something besides me. But you'll notice, as bad as that is, the end of verse 6 says, but you will still see greater abominations. And thus, that's what is revealed in this vision sequence. Verses 7 and 8 give an image where Ezekiel is told to dig through a wall in the temple courtyard area. Now, again, this is a vision. People get stuck on that. How is Ezekiel digging through walls? Vision, 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 vision sequence. And he's digging through the wall. And notice what he observes there in verse 9 where it says, go in and see The vile abominations that they are committing there. Verse 10, I went and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Notice that on the walls, on the buildings, in the temple complex are graven images of animals And creeping things. Now you might remember God said don't ever do that. Not only do they have graven images. Not only are they have graven images inscribed on walls. It's in the temple complex. It's in the very place where God's supposed to be worshipped. And they've put up all of these animals and pictures and they're worshipping those things. In fact, notice it says there in verse 11 that before them stood these 70 men are the elders of the house of Israel. And you're told there that this censer is in their hand and the smoke goes up of, of the incense. And here they are worshiping. And there's verse 12, son of man or mortal, have you not seen what these elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in the room with pictures? Here they are worshiping these idols that are in the temple complex, worshiping the graven images, worshiping this this place, this idol of jealousy that is provoking God to jealousy and to anger. And notice verse 13. You will still see greater abominations that they commit. There's more. If that were not enough, there's more. Verse 14 Ezekiel is brought in vision to the north gate of the of the house of Israel, of the Lord, this temple complex. And behold, there sat women 
weeping for Tammuz. Now, that's just another god. And so just visualize that as the spirit in vision is moving Ezekiel around the courtyard of the, the temple complex and moving closer and closer. Now in the courtyard of the women here where the women are, are worshiping and they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping and weeping for Tamos. They're not weeping for God. They're weeping for their idols. Notice verse 15. Have you seen this? You'll still see greater abominations than these. Verse 16, he's brought to the inner court of the house of the Lord. So moving closer and closer into the temple complex. And notice in verse 16, behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men. And their backs were to the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. This probably is one of the more stark visualizations, not only worshiping false gods, but the location and the imagery. Their backs are to God at the house, worshiping east toward the sun. They have literally turned their back on God and are worshiping false gods, all kinds of false gods. They're worshiping the sun. They're worshiping graven images. They're worshiping Tamas. They're worshiping Asherah. All of them in the temple complex to varying degrees. As you get closer and closer to that inner sanctuary, more and more idols are being revealed as they go. And if that were not enough, he says there in verse 17, if it wasn't too light a thing that we're seeing all of this idolatry, He says there in verse 17 that the land is filled with violence and it provokes me to anger all the more. Not only are you worshiping your false gods, you're not even obeying my commands. There's violence throughout the land. Friends, these were supposed to be the people of God. And the visual is truly there at the end of verse 17 when it says they put the branch to their nose and A lot of scholars try to figure out, all right, what is that image? But I think the idea is they're essentially thumbing their nose at God. This is a stark, stunning image of how the people have turned their back on God. And because of that, you'll notice in chapter 9, those first two verses, God then sends out a declaration and he says it is time to destroy the city. Bring near the executioners of the city. Again, this is a vision. These people are not actually there. This is a vision sequence still going on. Imagery of God needing to judge Jerusalem. and He's going to deal with this idolatry and deal with these false things. But, but I want you to notice something that is truly stunning. Verse 3 of chapter 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, which it had rested, to the threshold of the house. Now remember, the glory of the Lord resided above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. That's what's being visualized right here. That's where God's presence was. And now for the first time of what we have ever seen. The glory of God and the presence of God is pictured as rising up from over the Ark of the Covenant. And it says moving to the threshold. Just imagine it moving out of the Holy of Holies to that doorframe, that threshold where you would enter. Moving to where that veil would have been. He's beginning the process of leaving this house. That is 
to be to his name and to his glory and to his worship. But before this imagery of destruction goes on, I want you to notice it says there in verse four, the Lord said, pass through the city, through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in that. If you are in our revelation class at 930 on Sunday morning, please put that in your memory banks. You will need that later about marking foreheads. And that's not some crazy futuristic technological concern. Here's a great visual of what God is doing before there can be judgment. God wants to mark his people. He's going to preserve his people in this. But I want you to notice, how does he define who his people are? With all of this wickedness and all of this idolatry and all of this violence, who then are truly the people of God in this circumstance? Did you see it there in verse 4? Verse 4 says, the people who are sighing and groaning, who are grieving and lamenting over all the abominations that are committed in the land. The people of God have a, a fruit that is observable. They are not participating in the sins of the culture. They are grieving the sins of the culture. They are not applauding and approving the sins and the idolatry. They are broken by the fact that all of this is going on. This is a key attribute of the people of God, that they would be lamenting over these things. They don't excuse the sins of the city. They don't adopt the sins of the city. They don't agree with the sins of the city. They are wailing over the sins of the city. He says, those are my people. My people are the ones who are upset by sin, who are upset by the things that are going on in that culture, in that city, and in that time. Those are the people of God. And so he says, it is so important that I'm going to mark who my people are. Now, I bet if you took a poll, all these people would raise their hand and go, oh, yeah, we're the people of God. Sure, we're the people of God, right? Hey, we're, we're, we're Judah. We're Jerusalem. We've got the temple. We're good, right? And God goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> not only a people who is not a part of that, but a people who are mourning over that, who are broken by sin. And what is going on. That is so shocking. Notice the words of verse 7. Where it says God said to them. Defile the house. And fill the courts with the slain. I want you to think about that. That is a, a very Malachi image. Malachi is a lot kinder. Malachi comes along as a prophet. And he says I sure wish that these temple doors were shut. That people just stop it. Notice what God says here. Just defile that temple so nobody will come there ever again. I don't want these people worshiping me. I don't want them coming to this place. I want it defiled. I want the dead bodies put there. So to be a place that they'll never come and try to do this. I, I think this is an important thing to consider for a moment. Because it matters to God about how we come to God and the heart that we have for God and the kind of worship we present. God does not sit back and go, well, at least they're still worshiping me. Yeah, I know they've got idols all over the place and graven images and weeping over Talmuds and violence all over the place. But at least when I have the Day of Atonement, they still do that. Or when the Sabbath comes around, they still do that. He says, you know what? Just shut it down. 
and shut it down to such a way to make it impossible for them to worship me because I don't want it anymore. That's a powerful declaration by God. I don't want your worship. When your idols capture your heart, he doesn't want your worship anymore because he ultimately wants your heart. Sometimes people ask, well, does it really matter, you know, what church you go to? Does it really matter how we worship? I would say this. We want to worship where God is. We want to worship where God is. A place where God would not look down and say, you know what, close the doors and defile the place. Uh, they're, they're so terrible, they're so wrong, they're so in error, they so don't care, they're so full of idols, they're so full of themselves, that I don't want my name there anymore. We won't want to be a place like that. Because it matters to God. And we should be just startled by God saying, defile my house. Because I'm leaving it. And I'm moving out of this place. Now I think there's an important question to ask. Why were the people doing this? What is going on in the hearts and the minds of the people that you would have idols in the temple courtyard, graven images on the walls, violence going throughout the land, nobody weeping and wailing over the sins of the the nation and of the city? What is going on in the hearts of the people? What are they thinking? I want you to notice twice it's told to us in chapter nine and verse nine. Verse nine, it says, Then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood. The city is full of injustice. Why? For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land. And the Lord does not see. He said it back in chapter 8 and verse 12. Those are the end of verse 12. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Why are they doing this? Why are they acting in defiance? Why are they keeping their idols? Why have they turned their back on God? Why are they worshiping the sun? Why are they engaged in all of this? Because they think that God doesn't see. And friends, I want to give this to you as one of our key points out of the lesson. That is the lie of sin. The lie of sin says... God doesn't see what I'm doing. No one's going to know. I'm getting away with it. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to be caught and there's not going to be any consequences to what I'm doing. That's what they're saying. God's not here and God doesn't care. It's fine. We'll worship our idols. We'll worship the sun. We'll do all these things. Violence will be in the land because God doesn't see. God's not going to do anything. God doesn't care. And what I want us to think about that I believe is true here, and I think it's stated in many places, and I'll show you one of those in a minute, but time is really one of the greatest enemies to our holiness. Time is one of the great enemies to our holiness. And here's what I mean. Because of God's grace and mercy, we are allowed so much time to repent. We think God's not going to do anything about it. That's the lie of sin. Well, because it's been so many years that I've been getting away with it, nothing's happening. God doesn't see. 
God doesn't care. Nothing's going to happen. I'm going to be just fine. That's the lie of sin. And that's what God is saying is, you don't think I see? It is absolutely humorous when you go to chapter 8 and verse 12. And notice it says that the people of Israel, the elders of the house of Israel, are doing it in the dark. They're worshiping in the dark. Oh, God doesn't see that because the lights are out. But we play that game, don't we? Oh, it's in my house, so God doesn't see. No one's ever going to know. It's in the quiet places. No one's going to ever see this. God goes, you're kidding me, right? You really think God doesn't see your sin? You think because the lights are out, he doesn't see? You think it's because it's in the privacy of your home, he doesn't see? You think it's because it's somewhere on the job, he doesn't see? You think because you're driving in a car, he doesn't see? Of course he sees. Remember, that was that vision that we saw of, of the Lord. And one of the key takeaways we saw was that God sees all. You have the eyes all around the wheels. What's he saying? You're not hiding anything. You're not getting away with anything. Time is such a great enemy of our holiness because we think months and years go by and God doesn't see and God doesn't care. And you might remember Peter warned of that. You might remember you come all the way to the New Testament. Peter said the exact same thing, knowing this, first of all, scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing. What are they doing? Why are they so intent on scoffing? Don't miss this line because they're following their own desires. We're doing what we want to do. And they think they're getting away with it. That's where this goes. All things keep continuing as they were. You know, what do we say? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So, hey, it's been years and years and years. World keeps going on. You keep saying there's going to be a judgment. Nah, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. Nothing's going to happen. Friends, that's the the, the air we breathe in our culture right now. Eh, God doesn't care. There is no God. There is. He's just happy with you doing whatever you want to do. Time is a great enemy of holiness. And that is what is being brought out here is God absolutely sees. And friends, it is the lie of sin to believe that you are getting away with these things. In fact, I love how that came together with Moses. You might remember a scene that happens as the the people of Israel are about to come into the promised land. They've come in from the east side of the Jordan River. Two of the tribes say, we would rather take this side and not go in. And Moses says, no, no, (laughs) Uh, you can have this land, but you're going to go fight for us. And you're going to fight and take that land because that's the promised land. If you, after we're done, want to come back here, that's great. And then he gives this really important warning to them. He says, now I'm going to let you have this land so you can leave your wives and leave your children and leave your livestock here. But when it's time to go in, you need to fight for us. And he says this, and if you don't, You've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. You ever thought about that phrase? We think we are outrunning sin, right? That's what they're doing. Well, we'll worship these gods, we're graven images, there's violence, we're doing all these things. God doesn't care, God doesn't see. And Moses makes a point, he says, you know, eventually sin catches up. Can't outrun it forever. 
And that's why you're seeing this picture of God leaving. Sin's finally caught up. And God now is going to act. And God is going to proclaim that his temple needs to be defiled. And that Jerusalem needs to be destroyed. Because it is time for judgment to come. Do not allow time to make you think that God is asleep. Or that God does not care. Or that God is not going to act. And so then that moves you to chapter 10. Where you actually see it in such stunning imagery. As here in chapter 10, you'll notice Ezekiel looks and he sees the the cherubim there and the appearance of the throne and all of its beauty. And something amazing is is depicted here where you would expect in this appearance, there appears to be this person who looks like a a, a priest and what he's able to do. But rather than having these coals and providing atonement you will notice in verse 2 it says to this man clothed in linen go and amend the the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim and fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city you wouldn't have expected in a priestly atonement we would have taken the coals and we would have made an offering for the people but rather than that happening the burning coals are visualized in this vision sequence being put over the people that it's not going to be atonement but rather it is going to be judgment and in chapter 10 you behold God truly leaving his temple in chapter 10 and verse 4 it reads and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of of the glory of God. But then jump down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. He is now left the house and is now at the gates of the temple complex. Here is a picture of God leaving. And so the big question is, and I pose at the beginning of this, why? And I think one of the big messages is this. God leaves When we show that we don't want him. That's really not that complex. (laughs) That's what the people have shown. Do they want God? No. They've got their back to the temple. And they're worshiping the sun. They're crying over Talmuds. They've got the graven images. They've got the, the place of jealousy put out in the courtyard. They don't care about God. Friends, God leaves when we show that we would rather have something else than him. It's really as simple as that. Is that we're telling God, I have an interest in so many other things besides you. I would rather with my pleasures. I would rather with my hobbies. I would rather with my pursuits. I would rather with my desires. I'd rather with all of my plans and goals. And I'm not interested in you, God. I'm not interested in your ways. God leaves when we show that we treasure other things but him. And God sees that. That God sees our hearts. And he sees our actions. And he hears our words. And he knows exactly what we're doing. 
And so, big application. When sin stays, God leaves. Now, profound. <laughs> when sin stays, God leaves. I want you to think about how many scriptures God makes this point. Isaiah 42, verse 8, here in this prophecy of Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with other idols. I'm not in the sharing business. I'm not going to be glad with, well, you gave me 51% and everything else got the other percentages. And so I'm good with that. You know, sometimes God is portrayed that way, you know, he's, he's God gets the majority of the time, and then we have all of our other... God has a hundred or zero. That's how he takes this. I'm not going to share. Now, can you imagine, you know, being married and telling your spouse, well, you got me at least 51% of the time. You got my heart 51% of the time. What do you want? 51% of the time. I'm right here devoted to you. That's good enough, right? Oh, yeah. Women swoon over that. Oh, 51. Who? It's a hundred or zero, right? It's a hundred or zero. It's devotion to me or forget it. But we come before God and think, well, at least I give him the most of my time. And here's God saying, I'm the Lord. I don't share. I want your heart. And it's so crucial that we see that picture. Along with that, it is crucial for us to see that purity is crucial. And that's what he's certainly showing here. You might remember how the Apostle John wrote this when he said, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and him there is no darkness. And that is a, a critical absolute right there. God is not going to have us be in a little bit of darkness and that be okay. God is light. No darkness at all. And that's the problem of why when sin stays, God leaves. God can't be with darkness. God can't be sharing us with idols because that's darkness. And so here's his point. If we say we're in fellowship with him, but we're in walking in darkness, and we've got our idols, and we're pursuing our desires... Notice he just says, you're just lying. You're just lying. It's just half-hearted. We're lying if we think that we can engage in this idolatry and follow our pursuits and follow our passions and follow our desires and do what we want to do, but we're in fellowship with God. John says, no, you're not. You're lying. You don't practice the truth. Here's a visual of how he tried to get that across. First Corinthians 10 verse 19. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, it, this isn't about that. There's a reality there. Obviously, I'm the true and living God. No, I imply to you that what the pagan sacrifice that they offer idols is not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now watch what he says, because it's the same terminology as Ezekiel. Are you trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Same image. 
What are you doing? If you're giving your heart to idolatry, but then running in here on Sunday, oh, yay, Lord, you know, yay, Jesus, we love him. And then Monday, back to our passions, desires, doing what we want to do. He says, you're just provoking him to jealousy. He doesn't share. He doesn't do that with us. That's why this is such an important visual. And one more, James makes it certainly clear. Notice the same idea of calling us adulterous people. Notice that same relationship image, breaking covenant with God, this jealousy idea. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? I don't know how many different ways God has to say this to us. It's all over the scriptures. When sin stays in our lives and in our hearts, God leaves. He doesn't share. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. Therefore, whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want you just to think about that line. Total side point, but hey, let's go there. Just ask yourself. Am I a friend of the world? Is that what I'm trying to do? Am I friends with the world? Friends in the way of thinking? Friends with the culture, friends with the value system, friends with the belief system, agreeing to what, what our world says is right and good. Totally rubber stamping that, A okay. Want to be a part of it, don't want to be looked at strangely, just, you know, participate in all that. If we want to be a friend of the world, he says you're an enemy of God. When sin stays, God leaves. It's as simple as that. Or do you, listen to this, or do you imagine that the scripture has no meaning when it says... He jealously yearns over your spirit. I don't know that we can ever fully appreciate what God is trying to communicate about how jealous he is for his people. And that's why he doesn't share. And that's why when sin stays, he leaves. Because he wants 100%. Otherwise, it's not what he's looking for. He wants that kind of relationship. So let me end with this simple question. Are we believing the lie of sin that whispers to us in every temptation? God doesn't see what we're doing and our sins are not going to catch up to us. Doesn't Satan whisper that every time you're going to get away with this one. No one's ever going to know. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. You're going to be just fine. There's not going to be any consequences. It's never going to catch up to you. Don't believe the lie. And I want to use the visual of this temple sequence and apply it to us because that's what the scriptures do. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17, you have a description there that we as the people of God collectively are described as the dwelling place of God. Don't you know that we're a temple to the living God? So let me just ask it this way then. So can God do that? Or are we doing something that is the object of jealousy that keeps him away from us? I think this is a really important question. We are to be the temple of the living God. Well, are we acting that way? Are we teaching in a way and living in a way and loving in a way so that that is truly the case, that God can be with his people here? And how important that that would be the case. It's not about sitting in pews and pretending at church, but that we would truly have God with us in the work that we are doing. 
That should be everything to us. And the object of jealousy blocks that. God can't be with us. If our hearts are other places, we care about other things. And three chapters later, he then said it to each of us as individuals. Don't you know, you are a temple of the living God. And I'll ask the same question. Can God do that? Can God live with you and be with you? Or is there an object of jealousy that's keeping him away so that he can't be with his people? Three chapters of God saying, I can't be with you when your hearts are far from me. And if we had another 45 minutes, chapter 11 will be, now let me tell you why I can be with you. Come back next week for that. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for how our hearts can stray from you. Forgive us for when our passions and desires have been for other things than you. That we have been caught up by this world, determined to be friends with this world, rather than passionately pursuing you. Lord, I pray that you would give us great determination, great courage, and great strength to purge any of the idols of jealousy that we have in our lives. Lord, give us the strength to rip those temptations out, rip those sins out. Give us the strength that we need to overcome them, Lord. And Lord, we need that help. Temptations are strong, and we know that Satan is trying to devour us like a roaring lion. So, Lord, give us the strength and that determination and be with us as we do it. And so, Lord, forgive us for how often we move away from you, how often we allow sin to stay. And forgive us for the times when we have believed that you do not care, that you don't care about our sins, that you don't care about how we worship, that you don't care about how we live, that we don't care about how we talk. Forgive us of those thoughts, Lord, and help us to see the reality that you do not live with darkness. Lord, we thank you for your son that allows us to walk in the light. We thank you for your son that cleanses us from our sins. And Lord, we know we need that cleansing. We pray that we will go forward in purity, walking in the light as he is in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Now sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight to turn away from sin and to see the, the gravity and the importance of sin. How God says, I can't be with a people who continue to put anything else but me as one and only. And we want to help you do that, to turn away from your sins. If you haven't been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is your start point to begin walking with Jesus each day and to follow him faithful. If we can help you in any way, won't you come and do that? Let us know while we stand and while we sing.